but perhaps I'd better read the section addressed to the wives in its entirety. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And then you remember the section goes on to the end of this chapter dealing with the duty of husbands towards their wives. Now here we come to what I have been describing the last two Sunday mornings as the practical application of the principle which the Apostle laid down in the 21st verse, which reads, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. There was the general principle. And now, as is his invariable custom, he comes to the particular application of that general principle. Now, there need be no question at all as to the fact that that is what the Apostle is doing here. We can prove that in three different ways. The first is that uh, the word uh, submit, which I've read out to you, it's here in the authorized version, and it's in these other versions. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Now, actually, in the original, the word submit is not there at all. It's just wives unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. What does it mean? Well, it means this, that he is carrying over the injunction about submitting from verse 21 here into verse 22, which is therefore a proof that verse 22 is a continuation of verse 21, that he's still dealing with the same theme. The general principle is one of submission. So he knows that that's in our minds, and therefore he says, wives, in this matter of submission, unto your own husbands. So the mere absence of the word submit in the original is a proof in and of itself that uh, that is what the apostle is doing here. But there is a second proof. The second proof is that he puts the wives before the husbands. And uh, that is not something accidental. Neither is it done merely uh, out of politeness or on the principle of ladies first. The Bible never does that. The Bible, as we shall see, and as the Apostle expounds, uh, invariably uses the other order, as indeed the law of the land does. And as we do in general parlance, we don't say Mrs. and Mr. so-and-so, we say Mr. and Mrs., and so on. So that uh, when the apostle puts the wives first in the consideration, he's got a very good reason for doing so. And the reason, of course, is that he is uh, particularly concerned about this question of submission, submitting. That's the principle, which is outlined in verse 21. Well, now, in the married relationship, the aspect of submission, as he shows, applies particularly to the wives. There is another aspect that applies to the husbands, and he deals with that because his statement is a full one and a balanced one. But as he's primarily concerned about the question of submission, 
he inevitably and quite naturally puts the wives first. So there we've got a second reason for the argument that what we're dealing with here is an outworking in particular of the general principle laid down in verse 21. And then another and a third argument for this is that he uses the expression unto your own husbands. You see, he emphasizes that wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Your husbands, your own. Well, now, he does that again for the same reason. In verse 21, he had laid down the general principle of submission on the part of all Christians to others, submitting yourselves one to another. And the argument is this. If you do that in general, if you do that uh, to everybody, as it were, well, how much more so should you do it to your own husbands in this peculiar relationship, which has already been defined so adequately in the Old Testament. Very well then. I'm taking trouble to emphasize this because if we are not clear that verse 21 really is the controlling principle, we cannot possibly understand his detailed teaching correctly. Very well, having cleared that point, let us proceed. And now, before we come to this vital subject and most important subject, especially in these present days, it does seem to me to be most important that we should, first of all, look at the Apostle's statement in general. Let's observe his method. Now, I have many reasons for doing this. What the Apostle does here we will find him doing in the case of children and parents and servants and masters. And you notice the order in each case. You see, the children come before the parents. Why? Well, because he's still concerned about submission. Children don't come before parents, but in this matter they do, because it's a question of submission. You see, and the, and the servants come before the masters, again for the same reason. Now, I'm saying that when we study a, a portion of Scripture like this, and I'm very concerned this morning to be doing something which is general. When we study a portion of scripture like this, we will find that the apostle employs his customary method. And if we can only grasp his method in one particular instance, we shall find the key to the understanding of other scriptures. Not only that, if we discover exactly how the apostle deals with any one problem, if we really have discovered his method, then if we are confronted by any problem, we shall find that all we need to do is to uh, apply the method. And as we apply the method, we shall be able to discover the answer. Is it clear, therefore, that what I'm doing this morning primarily is this, is studying the apostle's method. Then we will come, having done that, to the particular matter with which he deals at this point. But now, let's look at his general method. Let's get hold of this principle, which is of universal application. In doing this, of course, I am paying you a great compliment as a, a congregation. Uh, principles are much more important than the detailed teaching. We all today, like children, we want to be spoon-fed. But we should grow out of that, and we should be increasingly concerned about method 
principles, ways of doing things, so that we don't always be, have to be running like children to ask for answers to questions. We'll discover the method ourselves and we'll be able to work it out. Now then, let's watch his method. There are certain things which stand out very clearly, it seems to me, in this particular paragraph as illustrative of the Apostle's method. Here is the first. The fact that we have become Christians does not mean that we shall be automatically right in all we think and in all we do. There are some people who seem to think that that is the case, that the moment a man becomes a Christian, everything now is perfectly plain and clear and plain sailing. Of course, evangelists are very often responsible for that because they make extravagant and loose statements in their anxiety to get results. And they thereby, of course, leave many, many problems to pastors and teachers. The impression is given that you enter into this magical atmosphere. Nothing is the same. Everything is different. No problems, no difficulties. You do this, you take your decision, and the story is they all lived happily ever afterwards. There was never another problem or difficulty. Of course, it's quite wrong. If that were true, there wouldn't be a single epistle in the New Testament. The fact that we have become Christians, that the basic matter of our relationship to God has been put right, does not mean that we are now automatically right everywhere in all we think and all we say and all we do. The very paragraph we are looking at is proof in and of itself that we need instruction about particulars. The second principle is this. Not only is it true, as I've been saying, that the Christian is not automatically right about everything because he is a Christian. We can even say this, that the fact that a man has become a Christian will probably raise for him new problems which he's never had to confront before. Or if he doesn't do that, it will certainly present to him problems that he's never faced before in this way, that he sees situations as he's never seen them before. Whereas he didn't think at all before, he is now compelled to think, and the moment he thinks and because he thinks, he is confronted by new problems. Now this, of course, was very much the case in the early church. There is no question about that at all. It worked, you see, like this. Take the case of a wife. Husband and wife had been living together. They were both pagans, neither of them a Christian. And uh, they lived their married life as pagans did at that time. We shall have to refer to that later. But now the wife becomes converted and becomes a Christian. And the temptation that immediately confronted the wife was this. She said, well, now, of course, I, I am free. I, uh, I understand things as I never understood them before. The gospel has told me now there is neither barbarian nor Scythian, male nor female, bond nor free. Well, therefore, uh, I don't go on as I used to go on, and I have an understanding which my husband hasn't. And there was a danger, therefore, for the wife to misinterpret all that so as to upset the marriage relationship. It was the same with children and parents. It still tends to be the same. Very often... Uh, Children being converted when their parents are not and having an understanding which their parents haven't got, they misinterpret that and are led by the devil to misuse that and to abuse that. So that in the end, they find 
it is found that they are breaking the commandment of God which tells the children to honor their parents. You see how almost inevitably with the enlightenment that comes with Christianity new problems arise which had never had to be faced before. So we gather from this passage that the great change which takes place in regeneration has a tendency to raise new problems so that we have to think very carefully and to discover exactly what is right now in this new life and how we apply this new teaching to the new situation in which we find ourselves. The third principle is this one. Christianity has something to say about the whole of our life. There is no aspect of life which it doesn't consider and which it doesn't govern. Let me put it like this. There must be no compartments in our Christian life. Very often, as you know, there are. There, there, there are. The danger for these early Christians was that uh, these persons, husband or wife or children or parents, became converted and became Christian and uh, said to themselves, as it were, well, of course, this is something that uh, appertains to my religious life only, to the aspect of worship in my life. It's got nothing to do with my marriage, got nothing to do with my work, got nothing to do with my relationship to my parents and so on. Now, that's quite wrong according to this teaching. There's nothing more wrong and nothing more fatal than to be living a life in compartments. Sunday morning comes, oh, I'm a religious man now. I pick up my religious bag. Then Monday morning, oh, well, of course, I finished with that yesterday. I'm now a businessman or something else. Did I pick up another bag? And so I'm living my life in compartments. It's difficult to tell on Monday that I'm a Christian at all. Of course, I showed it on Sunday. I went to a place of worship. That's absolutely fatal. That's completely wrong. The Christian life is a whole. It's got something to say about every realm and department of life. Now, every one of these points, of course, as you realize, is a, a most important one and could be greatly elaborated. There are those who say, and up to a point I'm prepared to agree with them, that the present state of our churches and of Christianity is very largely due to the fact that many of our Victorian grandfathers were excessively guilty of that particular failure to realize that Christianity governs the whole of a man's life. Not only a part of it. Well, they were very religious people, many of them. In business and other places, they'd have prayers in their works or in their office in the morning. And then having done with the prayers, they became hard and grasping and unkind and unfair and legalistic. And undoubtedly they antagonized many against the Christian faith. And so often there was this kind of dichotomy, this uh, failure to realize the wholeness of the Christian's life and that he must never live a life in compartments. My Christianity enters into my married life, into my relationship to parents, into my work, into everything I am and everything I do. There's our third principle. And now I come to a fourth principle, which is again a most important one from the standpoint of doctrine and theology. And of course, because of that, in ordinary life also. Christian teaching never contradicts or undoes fundamental biblical teaching 
with respect to life and living. Now, what I mean is this. There is no contradiction between the New Testament and the Old Testament. This needs to be emphasized at the present time, of course, because of the common attitude towards the Old Testament. People say glibly and superficially, oh, well, of course, we're not interested any longer in anything said in the Old Testament. We are New Testament. They're foolish enough to say they don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. They say, I believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian preachers so-called say that from their pulpits, and it's applauded. They don't believe in the God of Sinai, in the God of the, of the Ten Commandments and the Moral Law. The Old Testament's nothing to say to us. We're all Christians now. So they dismiss the whole of the Old Testament teaching and uh, say that we must be guided by the New Testament teaching only. But, of course, some of them even go further than that. They say that we are not even to be governed by the New Testament. We know so much more by now. And thus, you see, there is this tendency to discount the whole of the biblical teaching. My answer is this. That the New Testament, the Christian, specifically Christian teaching, never contradicts, never sets aside basic, fundamental, biblical teaching with regard to human relationships and the orders of life. I'm referring, of course, to a subject like marriage, as we shall see here. The Apostle's argument is based partly upon what is taught in the Old Testament, even in the book of Genesis. It's the same about the family. It's the same about all these fundamental orders and arrangements in life. The fact that you become a Christian doesn't touch those at all. What it does do, of course, is to supplement it, to open it out, to give us a larger view of it, to help us to see the spirit behind the original injunction. But it never contradicts it. And this is a most important and vital principle. I'm emphasizing it because as a pastor, I've so often had to deal with it. People somehow get hold of this notion that because they're new beings in Christ, that the old fundamental principles no longer hold. The answer of the New Testament is they do. They do. You notice the apostle quotes the Old Testament in all these instances in order to show that the original teaching came from God and it must always be observed, however much it may be supplemented by this newer teaching. Well, there's our fourth principle. Let's go on to the fifth principle. The New Testament always gives us reasons for its teaching. It always gives us arguments. And there is nothing about it that I rejoice in so much as just that. The New Testament doesn't just throw a number of rules and regulations at us and say, now then, keep those. No, no. It always explains it. It always gives us an argument. It always gives us a reason. And that sort of Christianity that just imposes rules and regulations on people is a departure from the New Testament teaching. It is to treat us as children. Because there are such types of Christianity. You know, it's like putting on a uniform. And all the Christians are like peas in a pod, and there they are, and they're just going through their drill. 
That's not Christianity. We should always know why we're behaving in this way. We should always understand the reason for it. We should be perfectly clear and happy about it. And therefore there should be no contradiction. There should be no kicking against the pricks, working against the grain, feeling that I got to do it but wish I hadn't, hadn't got to do it and so on, and desiring to get as far away as I could from it. That's not Christianity. The Christian is a man who rejoices in the way he is living. He sees it so clearly. He doesn't want anything else. It's inevitable. His mind is satisfied. That's why I say that a man who is not a Christian doesn't know truly what it is to be a man. There's no teaching in the world that pays us such a compliment as this word of God. Doesn't treat us as children and govern us by rules and regulations and by numbers. No, no. It says, look here, listen to this. Can't you see this? Puts it to your reason. Puts it to your understanding. That's holiness teaching. Not something you receive in a packet. Not something that comes when you're more or less passive and unconscious. It's reasoning out the teaching. Taking a principle and working it out as the apostle does here. That's the New Testament method of holiness and of sanctification. And thank God for it. The sixth principle which I observe here again is a most marvelous and glorious one. What a wonderful thing this scripture is. I don't know whether you feel as I feel, but to me it's amazing that as you, you look at this and you think at first, oh, well, that's just, uh, of course, teaching about uh, marriage, husbands and wives and so on. And then you begin to discover these treasures that are here. You go from door to door and it's more wonderful as you go on. Look at this. Did you notice as I read this passage again this morning, the intimate relationship between doctrine and practice Doctrine and practice can never be separated and must never be separated. Why? Well, because each helps the other and each illustrates the other. You know, there are certain respects in which this passage we are looking at is to me one of the most astounding in the whole of the Bible. I'm not saying it's the greatest. I say it's one of the most astounding. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. Here we are in this epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and towards the end of the chapter. What, what's, what's happening in this part of this epistle? Well, says everybody, you're now in the practical section of your epistle. The great doctrinal section, of course, was chapters 1, 2, and 3. A bit of it came into chapter 4, but now he's right down to the realm of practicalities and uh, ordinary relationships and most ordinary matters. Never was the apostle more practical than he is in your section. Wives and husbands, husbands and wives, children, parents, masters, servants, and all the rest of it. Purely a practical section of his epistle. And yet you notice, don't you? Haven't you always been amazed at this when you've read it for yourself or when you've happened to be in a marriage uh, service when this uh, section of scripture has been read? Haven't you been absolutely astounded and almost uh, thrilled to the very marrow of your being as you find that the apostle in dealing with this most practical matter suddenly introduces us to the most exalted doctrine in telling wives and husbands how to behave with respect to one another he introduces the doctrine of the nature of the church and the relationship of the church to Christ. Indeed, I'm going to go further. In this very section, 
the apostle gives us his most exalted teaching of all about the nature of the church and the relationship of the church to Christ. Now then, this is something that we should never lose sight of. When you're reading this apostle, be prepared for surprises. Don't say to yourself, oh, well, I needn't pay much attention to this. This is, of course, practical and simple and direct. Suddenly, when you least expect it, he'll open the door and there you'll be confronted by the most magnificent and glorious doctrine you've ever seen in your life. Which leads me to make this practical comment. Beware of superficial analyses of the Scripture. You know these people who sort of come to the Scripture and say, chapter 1, this, 2, that... Also perfect, we've got it. You try and do that with this chapter 5 of the epistle to the Ephesians. And of course you'll find that at once you're bewildered and you don't know what to do nor where you are. Because here in this most practical of sections suddenly introduces this tremendous doctrine of the nature of the church and the relationship of the church to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the thing I say that we must bear in mind is this, because it's the thing that comes out of all that that doctrine and practice are so intimately related that they cannot be separated. And any person who says, I'm only interested in doctrine, or who says, I'm only interested in the practical, is really denying the essence of the Christian message. This great passage demonstrates that in an almost perfect manner. Very well then, having said those six things, I say in the seventh place this. When you are confronted by any problem whatsoever, obviously in the light of all this, the thing to do is this. Never approach it directly. Never start by considering the thing per se in and of itself. Now that's the thing, of course, we all tend to do. How often have I found this in discussion groups and meetings? The question is put forward, a practical problem in somebody's daily life and living, and I put it to the meeting. And the tendency is for people at once to get up and to speak directly on the question and to give their opinion. And for that reason, of course, it's generally wrong, because that's not the way to approach the problem. The apostle doesn't approach this problem of uh, husband, wives and husbands and husbands and wives directly, immediately, per se, as if it were an isolated question. No, no. The method is this. You must always approach it indirectly. It is, again, the strategy of the indirect approach. Here I'm confronted by a particular question. Now, I don't immediately apply my mind to that. The first question I must ask is this. Is there any principle, is there any doctrine in the scripture that covers this kind of problem? In other words, before you begin to deal with the individual, as it were, that's in front of you, you say, well, what family does he belong to? You might go even wider. You might say, what nation does he belong to? Get hold of a big classification. And then, having discovered the truth about the group or the class or the great company, you now proceed from that to apply that principle to that particular instance or example. That's what the apostle does here. He starts with the general and then comes to the particular. I think I've often used this illustration before, but anybody who's ever done any chemistry 
and who's been confronted by a substance, he's asked, well, now, what is this exactly? How does he do it? Well, he does the very thing I've just been saying. He starts with his most general tests, the big group tests. He can exclude certain groups, then he narrows it down to one group. Then he's got to divide up these divisions, the subdivisions of the group. And then he goes down and down, and at last he comes to the particular individual substance. That is the apostle's method here, as it is indeed his method everywhere. The strategy of the indirect approach, the movement from the general to the particular. Never jump at a problem, never tackle it in and of itself. Get hold of your great principles, your covering doctrine. And the last point I make is this one. And again, it's a very practical one, which I deduce from all that's gone before. Notice the spirit in which the apostle conducts the discussion. Here he's taking up the problem of the relationship of uh, wives and husbands and husbands and wives. You notice his method, you notice the spirit in which he does it. This is one of the standing jokes, isn't it? This is something that always can raise a laugh. The poorest comedian tries to make something of this, he's got nothing else, he tries to produce, that'll always raise a laugh. Marriage relationships, husbands and wives. I needn't point out, need I, that the apostle doesn't handle it like that? You can't handle any Christian problem like that. But there are other negatives. Not only does he not handle it jocularly and flippantly and lightly, there is a complete absence of the partisan spirit here. Nothing heated. Nothing assertive. No standing for rights and anxious to prove that he is right and the other wrong. That's how these matters are normally dealt with, isn't it? And that is why there is so much trouble. Now, the apostle evades all that, as I've been saying, by lifting it up and putting it into another context. And by doing that, he avoids all these difficulties. His method positively is this, you see. It is in the fear of Christ that he's already put down in, chapter, in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Then he repeats it. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord. You see, before you begin to take your stands on the one side and on the other, and you're already doomed, of course, to failure because you're in a partisan spirit, he prevents it all. He raises birth immediately to the Lord. And every subject that is discussed by Christians should be discussed in that way. A Christian who loses his or her temper in an argument shouldn't speak. Whether you prove your point or not, you've lost everything by losing your temper. It is in the Lord, in the fear of Christ. He's talking about submission. And his point is that before we are concerned about the merits of these two people, both of them must submit themselves unto the Lord, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. So you see, you both do that. You're having your argument on your knees, and what a difference that makes. If I may use the vulgarism, you don't get up on your hind legs. You get down on your knees. And if only we conducted these matters of difficulty upon our knees, what a difference it would make. Now, it's not only about this question of husbands and wives, 
it's the heat that's generated over the argument about pacifism and so on, and these various other matters that are engaging people today. The heat, the partisan spirit, the animosity. No, no, the method is, says the apostle, the spirit is that we must all do it always in submission to the Lord with a desire to please him, with a readiness always to be taught and to be led by him and by his word. Now then, there I've given you eight general principles which not only govern this, but govern every problem that can ever arise in your Christian life. Having done that, let's go on to the particular matter. All I have been saying is illustrated to perfection in the Apostle's treatment here of the Christian view of marriage, the Christian teaching concerning marriage. But once more, we must follow the method before we come to the details, let's look at the general things which he tells us about this. What is it? Well, the first big thing he tells us is that the Christian view of marriage is a unique view. It is a view that is entirely different from every other view. It is a view that you only find in the Bible. How does the Christian view marriage? What is the teaching? Well, let me start again with the negative. The Christian view of marriage is not the way in which marriage is generally viewed by the vast majority of people. Have you ever thought of this? What if I asked you at this point to go home and to write out the Christian view of marriage? Have you ever done that? Shame on us who are Christians if we haven't. We are very poor Christians if we haven't. Have we discovered the uniqueness of the Christian view? Have we realized how it differs so essentially from the general view? What is that general view? Well, unsavory though it is, I must remind you of it. The common view of marriage is a purely physical one. It is something which is based almost exclusively on physical attraction and the desire for physical gratification. It is a legalizing of physical attraction and physical gratification. So often it is nothing but that. Hence the scandal of divorce. They haven't even thought about it. They have no view of marriage at all. They are governed entirely by instincts and impulses. It's purely on the animal level and never rises above that. No thought whatsoever about the thing in and of itself, but it is a legalizing of something that they're anxious to do. But then there is another second uh, common view which rises a little higher than that. It's a little more intelligent than that because this second view says marriage, it says, is a human arrangement and a human contrivance. They say anthropology teaches us this. There was no, no doubt, they say, a time when uh, human beings were more or less like animals and they were promiscuous and uh, they behaved as animals behave. But uh, as man began to develop and to evolve, he began to realize that certain arrangements were necessary, that all that led to confusion and to chaos and to a lot of trouble. So after a long process of agonizing and of development and of experiment and of trial and of error, uh, human nature in its wisdom, civilization, 
came to the conclusion that it would be right and well and good that you should have monogamy, one man and one woman. You passed through the stage of polygamy before that, and so on. But at last it worked itself up to this. It's a matter of development. It's a matter of social development. It's the teaching of anthropology. But the whole time, you see, it's a something that man has discovered. As he passes acts of parliament to control traffic and parking and so on, so he has discovered a way of solving this problem of men and women and their relationships to one another and children and so on and so forth. Something entirely human. That is, I think, probably the common assumption which is made by the vast majority of people, unless I find at times even by Christian people. Then another characteristic of this view is this, that because it hasn't a fundamentally correct view of what marriage really is, the whole approach to marriage is one which almost expects trouble. That was very true of the pagan world. Wives seeking to rule their husbands and husbands tending to tyrannize over their wives and to make slaves of their wives. The atmosphere was one of jealousy and of antagonism leading to strife and to quarreling of necessity. Instead of this common submission to the Lord, each one standing for his or her rights, not a, a true partnership, but a, well, a kind of agreement that for certain purposes they're going to do certain things together. But an underlying bitterness and antagonism and spirit and sense of opposition. Now, you examine the commonly held view of marriage and of the marriage state and relationship. Don't you see it in the cartoons? Don't you see it in the reports of the cases? Don't you see it, I say again, in the popular jokes? Why should it be that? How has this come to be so current? Well, it's because, you see, of this completely, entirely wrong view of what marriage really means. And, of course, today the whole thing has become aggravated because of the modern notions of equality between men and women, the results of the so-called feminist movement. This has aggravated the whole problem, and, uh, and it makes the subject we are dealing with uh, so particularly urgent at the present time. There has been this modern movement of feminism, which claims that men and women are equal in every respect, and that there should be no division or distinction at all, neither the one before the other, this complete equality. And of course, while there are aspects of it which any Christian men leave alone, any sane and intelligent men must agree with, with the whole of his being, Taking it in general and as a principle, it flies against the plain teaching of the scripture at this point and is without any question the cause of much confusion, much trouble, and much damage not only to the marriage state but also to the family as the fundamental unit in life. Discipline is gone. Order is gone. Children are not given a chance. Why? Well, because their parents are not in the right relationship to one another. And the child is bewildered, seeing this competition, this conflict, where there should be none. So, you see, this modern movement has tended to becloud the whole issue. And alas, it seems even to be seeping into the thinking of many who call themselves evangelical. 
and who claim to believe in the Scripture as the infallible and inspired Word of God. Well, now you notice at once that that's not the Christian approach to marriage. None of those things come in at all. What is it? Well, it's this. The Christian view of marriage is something that is governed entirely and solely by the teaching of the Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament, both. The apostle derives his argument from the old as well as from the new. So a man who claims to be a Christian, he doesn't say, now what I think about marriage. He says, what does the Bible say about marriage? You see, there's a complete difference at the very beginning. He submits himself to the teaching of this book. He doesn't say, of course, by now we've developed and advanced so much, and women were thought of like this, even by the Apostle Paul, you know, who was so right in the atonement, but on women were so wrong. Now, the moment you say that, you no longer believe your scriptures. And you mustn't say that you believe it is the infallible word of God, if you think you know better. No, no, the Christian says, I know nothing apart from what the scripture tells me. So he submits to the Old Testament, and to the New Testament. His life is to be governed by this in this matter of thought. Secondly, we discover that it is not a human contrivance or arrangement, but God's ordinance. Something instituted by men. Something that God in his infinite grace and kindness has appointed and ordained and prepared and established for men and women. It is of God and not of man. The teaching of the anthropologist is pure speculation and imagination. It is not true. The teaching of the Bible is the truth about this matter. It is God's contrivance and God's ordinance. Thirdly, the terms of the relationship we shall find are clearly and plainly stated. And fourthly, Marriage can only be fully understood as we understand the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and the church. You notice it's central. He keeps on carrying on the argument about Christ and the church right through the whole paragraph. In other words, it comes to this. If we are not clear about the Lord Jesus Christ and the church and the relationship of the church to him, we cannot understand marriage. It's impossible, because it is only in the light of that doctrine that we really understand the doctrine concerning marriage. I therefore end with these two deductions. It is only the Christian who truly understands and appreciates marriage. Oh, that's why... It is such a wonderful thing to be a Christian. You know, Christianity doesn't only deal with your soul, my friend, and your final salvation, your avoidance of hell, and your going to heaven. Christianity touches the whole of your life while you're still here. There has been nothing more wonderful, I think I can say honestly, in my pastoral experience, than to see the difference it makes in the husband-wife relationship. Where there was a tendency to part or to drift from one another and an antagonism and almost a bitterness and a hatred, the two people becoming Christians have discovered one another for the first time and have discovered what marriage is for the first time, though they may have been married for years. And see what a beautiful and what a glorious thing it is. You cannot understand marriage truly unless you are a Christian. May I venture to put it like this?
In the light of all this, the wonder is not that there are so many divorces, but that, that, but that there are not many more. Isn't it an amazing and astounding thing that in the absence of thought and with the wrong thinking, when they do begin to think that marriages hold even as they do? No man, no woman has a true conception of marriage who is not a Christian. But if we are Christian, there should be no difficulty about knowing what marriage is and what it means. There should be no argument. There should be no disputation. If you come and believe this teaching, the thing is inevitable. Not only is it inevitable, you're very glad that it is inevitable. It's so wonderful. It is so glorious. It is so exalted. There is no difficulty. There's no haggling. There's no argument. And no saying, well, I don't think I can actually go. You have submitted yourself to Christ. So has the other. And you've both submitted yourselves not only to one another, but to all the other members of the church and of the community to which you belong. You are governed by a higher loyalty. By loyalty to him who didn't consider his own rights and prerogatives. But who considered you only and your desperate and appalling need. And humbled himself. Laid aside his rights and prerogatives. And humbled himself. And took upon him even the form of a servant. And even went to the death, yea, the death of the and looking at him, and seeing how he came not only to save you from hell, but to give you life, and to give you life more abundantly, and to fill out your understanding of everything with his own glory. Seeing that, you see marriage anew, you see everything anew, and you don't object to its teaching, you not only submit yourself to it, I say you rejoice in it, and you praise God for it. Very well. There is our introduction to the detailed teaching of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 with regard to Christian marriage. God willing, we'll go on next Sunday to consider the teaching in detail. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.